The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range, Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie well, the week on the right hook here at Newstalk is coming to an end with me, George Hook, and we've got some of the outstanding items of today's show that you can listen to just in case you miss them. I'm joined now by John David, Chief Executive of Transparency International Ireland. John David, welcome to the programme. Good afternoon, George. Now, um, the front pages are absolutely full of five-star motor cars and whatnot being towed away um, yeah. from the houses of so-called gangland criminals or alleged gangland criminals. Uh, but but you think um, there's a bigger crime which is costing us more money and isn't getting any attention? Well, it's not getting uh, the attention that gangland crime is getting because, as, as the saying goes, if it bleeds, it leads. And white-collar crime is often seen as a victimless crime, uh, in large part because it's, 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 it's happening behind closed doors. Uh, its perpetrators are very often upstanding, perceived to be model citizens, uh, working in, in public service, working in banks and business and elsewhere. Uh, and it's not as, as visible as, as gangland crime, but we know from data produced by the likes of Ernst and Young and PricewaterhouseCoopers and, uh, and others, that white-collar crime is costing the economy billions of euros every year. And, and we're not even counting the cost to the public purse directly. We're not even calculating or taking into account the potential economic cost from corruption in public procurement or planning in, in local authorities. We're just looking, we just use uh, data produced 10 years ago uh, by by a consultancy called uh, RSM Robson Roads. It was estimated that two and a half billion euros a year is being lost to, to, to the economy from white collar crime. Uh, and, and that's that's, that's okay. money being lost that can right. be reinvested in, in true taxation and public services and elsewhere. But what what's white collar crime exactly? I mean, well, well there's different everything from. Yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, what is it? Well, white-collar crime is a colloquial term uh, lent to many different types of crimes, including bribery and corruption, uh, identity theft, insurance fraud, money laundering, uh, and other types of cybercrime, for example. Um, but the type of crime that, that uh, and the type of white-collar crime that Transparency International is concerned with usually involves public officials doing favours on behalf of people in, in the private sector and sometimes in the non-profit sector too. But it's that kind of uh, white-collar crime that it largely goes either undetected or uninvestigated uh, or is often not prosecuted. In contrast to many other jurisdictions like the US or Hong Kong, Ireland has an appalling record in in investing and tackling this problem. Our our state agencies responsible for tackling this problem are are, are under-resourced. Uh, and there are very few, relatively speaking, very few prosecutions for, for, for very serious offences. Yeah. Now, certainly, when when I first went in, into business, like in the uh, middle 60s, um, public officials had uh, an incredible integrity about their work. You know, they sometimes they would get gifts, and this is from my experience of that time. 
they would get gifts and they would send them back. And these mm. would be gifts, well-meaning gifts by people, you know, uh, mm. not, not attempting to get a favour in any way, but just, to, you know, there was bottles of whiskey being delivered to all kinds of offices at Christmas or something, and one yeah. went to a, a public official and sent it back. Now, uh, George Redmond was recently uh, uh, characterised as probably one of the greatest uh, corrupt public servants in our history. Uh, mm. Is this something to do, like half a century later, is this something to do with what, like? Have we have, have standards just <coughs> dropped or what? Mm. It's, it's very it's very difficult to tell. I think it would be a mistake to assume that, that corruption died with George Redmond or Charlie Hoy or Liam Lawler. And it, I mean, just worth pointing out that the, the corruption findings in the tribunals and in the courts were overturned against George Redmond. Um, but it's safe to assume that he he, he didn't perform his functions in, in the manner in which uh, the public would have expected him to. But the point is that the, the risks of corruption are still very acute. The, the incentives and opportunities for people in the public service, and, and it's worth pointing out that the majority of, of public servants are law-abiding, hard-working individuals, but the incentives and opportunities are there for people to, to, to engage in corruption, particularly in public procurement, where you have multi-billion euro budgets uh, that are being managed by sometimes a relatively small number of public officials who were responsible for awarding those uh, contracts to, to business people who have a, a huge incentive for 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 paying bribes for for interfering unlawfully in, in the award process, uh, and given the fact there's so much money available, we don't have the controls yeah. in place to to oversee this this process. Let's just citing one example. Uh, we we have 15 separate investigations now into Nama, where where 70 billion euros worth of state assets have been sold off. Uh, an investigation by the Securities and Exchange Commission in New York and the National Crimes Agency in the UK into deals in Northern Ireland. Uh, and we've just written to NAMA to, to highlight our concerns about the level of controls in place. Uh, yeah, but at, at, that's fine. But like at the moment, there is no evidence. I mean, like it, it, the thing is... Um, I, I never thought, I, from the day I heard uh, the late Brian Lennon announce it in budget speech, I thought it was a disastrous idea uh, to give away that amount of money and just hand it over to somebody uh, and say, off you go, do what you like with it, um, which is in effect what happened. And and massive amounts of Irish assets were sold off at knockdown prices. But if you go back, like, if you look at this country, we, we park on double yellow lines, other countries countries don't um we 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 have a relaxed attitude to uh, everything we do if you look at the 60s the 70s and the 80s every company that went into liquidation the biggest creditor was the revenue for that and more importantly for tax deducted from the employees uh, and and not passed on so we're just we just have a very, very poor view of of law and order in the well, sense I, as a nation. Yeah. No, I'm not. I don't. I don't agree with you entirely, George. I mean, relatively speaking, Ireland is considered to be one of the least corrupt countries in the world. Now, it's not to say that corruption doesn't affect uh, public life here to any great degree. I would say it, it affects 
public life to a much greater degree than our own index uh, would, would suggest. Right, no, no, hold on. Well, this list corrupting in the world. You suddenly I, find there's a truckload of companies <laughs> in this list, you know, yeah, that we, yeah, if no, we were I, comparing ourselves to them, yeah, we'd be in a very but, bad way. No, absolutely. But the, the point here is that we, we, we need to look at what are the risks of, of corruption in Ireland and are they being addressed? And the, 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 to, to date, they haven't been addressed adequately. The, the other point as well is that if, if the law is not enforced, much the same way that it had the smoking ban not being enforced, the culture towards smoking in public places would not have changed. Unfortunately, in Ireland, well, well we've done a lot to, to introduce new legislation. We've, we're, the, our government is much more open than it was in the, in the past. We haven't held people to account for right. serious white-collar crimes. And that needs to change. We need to invest more money and more energy right. in, in, in tackling this problem. All right. Thank you so much for joining me, Chief Executive of Transparency International Ireland, John Devitt. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie All right. Welcome back. It's The Right Hook. Um, Now, we're going to talk about racism in a minute, but just before I go to my guest, I got a text from Mark in Dublin, and the topic is, I feel Obama should have gone to Nancy Reagan's funeral, and he didn't, and then I get a text saying that, you know, uh, I'm wrong to criticize Obama, and then he says, your opinion is utterly biased, fair, ill-informed, fair, and borderline racist. <laughs> like, I mean, the problem now is that you can't do anything without fear of being called racist. So it was interesting that the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, has said that it is reasonable to fear the colossal migration crisis, and he reckons it's outrageous to call people racist for being anxious or afraid. Delighted, therefore, to welcome into the studio lecturer in theology at the University of London, herself, a sister with the Congregation of Jesus, Gemma Simmons. Gemma, welcome to the programme. Thank you, George. Now, the Archbishop, um, there is fear, but isn't there... Like, I don't know what Sunday it is that that the gospel has, the Good Samaritan, all Mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. Mm. And I heard it recently at my grandson's confirmation. Yes. Um, There's surely a big contradiction for Christians here, isn't there? There's the kind of charity Paul says it is greatest of all things and so on. So how do you reconcile that? I don't think they're contradictory. I mean, it seems to me that it's an important thing for people to be proud of where they come from, proud of their culture, and also to want to protect their culture from just being uh, overcrowded by another culture which they feel is, is alien to their own. That is one thing. Um, actually looking at people of another race and saying they are a lesser human being than me, they're less worth being a human than I am, that is racism. Those are two very different things. In, in the sense that the way many, many Germans looked at Jews was clearly racism, for instance, where they saw them as a, as, as a, a lower class entirely, almost like there was, a, there was a dreadful racist newspaper, which I can't remember now. Uh, but, but like they all, they characterized Jews. Absolutely. And, and looking at people as a sub-race or I'm thinking of the times in the 1960s when in English boarding houses there were notices that said, 
no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. Mm. I mean, that is rampant racism. But to say, look, we are actually a people with a history, with a culture. We think this history and this culture is precious. And we feel anxious about the fact that people from a very different history and culture are coming to settle in our country in large numbers. And we're asking ourselves how we're going to live alongside each other. I think that's got to be something that can be openly debated without people throwing names at each other like racist or or what have you. Well, it's interesting that that I used that comment earlier on. I mean, we're talking about whether somebody should go to a funeral or not, but because Obama happens to be black, I'm then accused of being racist. It's a very handy card, though, isn't it, to, to throw? It is. And I think we're getting hugely oversensitive. I mean, in the in the UK universities at the moment, we've got students trying to take down statues and take down pictures because once upon a time in the 18th century, the person whose statue it is did something bad. Now, you know, if we if we were to do that, there wouldn't be a statue left in Britain because everybody's been involved with something that could be questioned. Well, therefore, and you're a religious sister, so... So you're dedicated to the teaching of Jesus and teaching of the Catholic Church and so on, which is which is a pretty strict teaching. But based on those Ten Commandments, it's a good way to live. We accept that. But uh, the, the, the situation now of culture, um, when we look at this migrant crisis mm-hmm. and we look at it, the, that it's a bounden duty to take these misfortunate people on board, mm. the numbers, like... Uh, you and I are old enough to rem- to go back a fair amount of time. It's never been something like this before. This is completely and utterly uh, uh, unproven as to how this is going to work. It is, and it's a huge logistical problem. And I don't in any way doubt that. But I don't think. I think to be to ask questions about how it's going to be done, how we are going to live alongside each other is one thing. To try and protect ourselves and say, we're not going to share anything with anybody and therefore we're going to protect our borders and we don't care that there are babies dying of diseases on our very doorstep. There are people with trench foot and frostbite, you know, at the doors of Europe. You know, we've got to we've got a box clever about this. Well, how do we box clever, though? Because, like, the numbers would... Like, if we look at the moment, I, what really saddens me, and, like, I'm I'm quite negative about allowing migrants into Ireland. I'm Is quite that right? Ne- yes, uh-huh. I'm quite negative about mm-hmm. that, right? Um, so I'm in favour of putting up more barbed wire. Are or, you indeed? I am. Right. I'm sorry to hear that, George. <laughs> right. Okay, but um, what 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 really saddened me was that there are millions in Greece and Turkey, yes. and and the EU is saying to Turkey, "Look, if you keep them, we give you six billion." Now, that's almost like the trade-off that at, towards the end of World War Two, where Himmler actually said, "Look, I'll send you a couple of train loads of Jews if you don't if if you let me go." I mean. That's an incredible trade-off, I find. I think it's a very cynical move, I have to say, and I don't think it's a move that makes sense. I mean, most of the people who come to the camps, to the borders, these are highly trained, educated people. These are a resource. Yes, we do. 
Because A, to be honest, most of them, they're the ones who've got the money to pay the traffickers to get there in the first place. And many of these are people who are a resource for our countries. I look at a country like England, where we have some very, very serious skill shortages. We've got people on our borders who could actually supply those skill shortages for us. These are people who want to work, who want to contribute, and actually most of them are desperate to go home to their own country. But the Australians, in a way, have done this with all sorts of migration. Like, if if an Irish person wants to go to Australia, they say, you know, if you're an accountant, we need you, or if you're a carpenter, we need you. But however, if you're primary, I mean, I'm hypothetically, um, but if you're a primary school teacher, we don't need you, so tough luck, you're not getting a visa. I mean... In this issue, you look at your Britain and you say, we need the following. But that's not going to be the way that places are going to be allocated. They're just going to come across the border, whatever number is agreed. Well, I think, I, mean? I think governments that theory have a right. Falls down. I think go- governments have a right to make stipulations, and I would rather see a stipulation made, at least on a skills basis, than either on a, a money basis or just a uh, we we like the look of you, but we don't like the look of you. Um, and equally, we we've got we've got a two different situations here. One is, let's look at, A, why these governments are collapsing or why these countries are in such desperate states in the first place. Half the time, it's because we've interfered with them. I mean, our hands are not clean, nor are the hands of many other countries in the world in terms of supporting uh, dictatorships, which then try to kill their own people. I mean, it's it's an absolute disgrace what's going on there. Well, then... For the Europe's Catholics, right? Yes. There's 500 million apparently in the EU in total. Mm-hmm. I know a percentage of them are Catholics. But let's talk about the ones who, who are Catholics, uh, maybe not Mass every Sunday, but they still see themselves mm-hmm. as Catholics. What's the message to them then uh, on this migrant crisis? Is it, you know, uh, I see myself as a Catholic. So right. Give me the message. Okay, George. Take down the barbed wire, George. I I would say there are are two messages. First message, essential message. These are people. They're people like you. They're people like me. And it is intolerable for us to accept the state in which many of them are actually being kept at the moment. We've got elderly people, disabled people, traumatized and terrified people at our gates in a situation where there's no basic sanitation. Their state is horrendous. So first and foremost, Christian response, it is intolerable that people should be kept in uh, situations where they have no dignity and no care. Second thing, we need to be intelligent enough to put pressure on our governments to come to viable and workable political solutions. We need to use our brains. Just because you're a Catholic, it doesn't mean you don't get to use your brain, okay? So actually, we have a voice. We have a voice with our politicians to say, in the name right. of humanity, care for these people, but find a solution. All right. But in January alone, the yes. biggest numbers in, 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 in ever, 134 families made homeless in this country, mm-hmm. 269 children mm-hmm. in one month. Mm-hmm. We've got, you know, we've got staggering amount of homeless people yes. ourselves, yes. right? They've been put up in hotels and hostels and all sorts of things. 
So where does the pecking order come in then? If, if, if you're Syrian person, because most of them are Syrians or Afghanis, uh, do they, and it's a tough question, but surely it's one that has to be asked. Do you give the house to the Afghani or do you give the house to the Irish person? I would How does l- Jesus handle that one? He says, open your doors. <laughs> I told how, many, how many spare rooms in your house, George? <laughs> how many spare rooms? Yeah. Look, the Pope has asked the religious orders in Rome, most of whom have their headquarters, yeah. to open up their houses. Okay. In the headquarters of the Congregation of Jesus, my congregation, we've currently got women migrants living with us in the house because we've got rooms to spare. Now... I think there are many families who would actually, at least as a holding space, take people in to give them somewhere to stay. Uh, Let's let's think I've I've got an idea. Hang on for a minute, right? Uh, Put the headphones on and then Mike... Oh, no, he's not on the line. What a shame. He's not on the line. I thought Michael Graham, my tame uh, uh, lunatic... Can we get him? Are you there? Absolutely. Oh, George, listen. You, know you can't shut me up. You know that. Michael, Michael. Jumping anywhere. With me in the studio. This is Michael Graham in Atlanta, Gemma. Right. Now, Michael, I want you to be suitably uh, nice. Uh, I will don what the lessons I learned as a graduate of Oral Roberts University and Evangelical Christian College in Tulsa, yes. Oklahoma. Now, Sister Gemma Simmons is a oh, right-thinking pro, a person, so you Hi, behave Michael. yourself. You're, you're not holding a ruler right now, are I'm you? I'm not a, a ruler in sight, Michael, I promise. No, no. <laughs> Go on. T- tell me your view. You've heard uh, Sister Simmons. Well, first of all, I just, I just want to add what appears to be a fact dispute. There's an interesting piece in the Washington Post just a couple months ago written by a pro-refugee receiving person who acknowledges that refugees are a cost up front because they are, quote, low skill, his description. They tend to arrive in poverty. Uh, and uh, so his argument is that you have to invest in them early because of their lack of skills, lack of marketable skills. Of course, language skills are an issue. But then over time, you'll recoup that. But I just want to make it clear that there's wide agreement that these refugees are, in fact, relatively poor compared to Europe and relatively low skilled compared to the European workforce. So I just want to get that fact out. My second question is, if you honestly believe that every person in the world has the right to come to Europe or Ireland, aren't you saying that the people of Ireland don't have a human right to have a border and to decide what those borders will be? No, I'm absolutely not. I also contest what you're saying there, Michael, about low skills. A colleague of mine who's a professor in the same university as me, his sister and her children have just arrived from Syria. They're now in Belgium. The reason they're there is because their town has been bombed to splinters. There's nothing left. This is a highly, highly trained, intelligent woman. Of course, she's poor at the moment in comparison with Europe because there are economic, uh, you know, discrepancies there, but also she's poor because she's had to pay everything she's got to people traffickers to get her to Europe in the first place. I mean, that's an outrage, but it's not to do with people who are scroungers. These are people who are desperate to work to make I, I have, a, a I've, go of life. I don't, know what, I don't know what scrounger means, so I don't uh, know if that's a Somebody who's kind of sponging off other people. Because you know? I'm not saying, I don't, the argument from people who think that Ireland and Europe should be allowed to have what every other country in the world has, which is borders, isn't that the refugees are a bunch of lazy deadbeats. 
The argument is that they are in a uh, position of low skill, uh, relatively inability to create the wealth they need to live off of. They're going to have to live off the local community as it generally speaking. Obviously, there are exceptions. Of course, there are doctors who are fleeing. Uh, uh, and, and please stop saying Syria because it, it maybe a third of the people are coming from Syria. The rest are coming from other places. Um, the, the, some are doctors, but many are simply low-skill workers back home who will be low-skill workers in Europe. That doesn't make them good or bad or lazy. It just means that the Irish who are in Ireland today are going to have to pay the bill to feed, clothe, and house them, at least in the short term. Yeah, Gemma, we are going to have to pay. We are all going to have to pay. But, you know, also there are many people in the world in, in poorer countries who are paying for us because of the disparity in our trade agreements, they are paying for us to have the life we have now. So somewhere along the line, there has to come a moment where we look in the face of another human being who through no fault of their own is desperate to make a life because they cannot make a life for themselves at home and say, we are willing to share. That's to me the Christian bottom line. All right, we've kicked Michael off the phone. I'm sorry, Michael. Bye-bye. <laughs> Gemma Simmons, uh, uh, religious sister for the Congregation of Jesus, lecturer in theology at the University of London. I do have a tweet where somebody says, George, Jesus would box your ears and kick <laughs> you out of the church. Gemma, thank you so much he for joining me. He would do no such thing, George. <laughs> the Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear change at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie uh, The 20th anniversary of the Dunblane massacre was when on the Wednesday, March 13th, uh, Thomas Hamilton entered the primary school in Dunblane, shot and killed 16 children, wounded 13 more, also killed a teacher uh, before shooting himself. I'm joined now by Anna Smith, who was chief reporter for the Daily Record uh, at that time. Anna, welcome to the programme. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. Uh, Daily Record, of course, was Scotland's biggest selling daily newspaper at that time, 20 years ago. You heard about it. Uh, what happened next? Yeah, what happened is um, in, the, in the newspaper office, if you imagine a busy daily newspaper office and all the reporters were there, and I think it was a Wednesday morning, winter's day, and uh, the, the, all the phones started ringing, and they would ring now and again, but they were ringing, 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 and it was people saying, somebody saying there's been some accident, there's been some incident in Dunblane. Uh, another phone would ring, say somebody's been shot, and immediately you knew within about four or five minutes around the room that something was going on. So I was summoned, told, you go, you go right now. Uh, and a couple of bad offices in Edinburgh, and some of the reporters were taken from there, and several reporters would be going from Glasgow as, as well as me. But I was first out of the office, and within about two minutes, I got to the lights, and I was told, you have to come back, because we have the feature editor's kids are at the school, Alan Rennie, and uh, he was in a state, he said, you need to drive him there. So I'd then, Alan came out, obviously, nobody knew at this point how many kids had died, just or even if kids had died, but there had been a shooting in this school in, the, in a, sort of a very rural countryside place. And uh, Alan went with me in the car. And that journey, Dunblane, on a winter's day with the slow, snow and slush in the ground along the road up there at the motorway, is a, is a good hour's drive, 45-minute drive. And all the way there, he was in a state. I, I didn't know what I was going to, but I knew. You, you kind of, as a journalist, you have a sense of, of doom that something very bad has happened here. And he, at that point, didn't, his kids, I think, were six and seven, and he wasn't sure what class it was. He was wanting the radio on. I said, I don't put the radio on because 
you don't want to hear it right now. But anyway, we heard on the radio by that time it looked like 10 or 11 children may have been killed. So you can imagine the state he was in. And um, at that point, uh, when I, I, we drove all the way there, a crowd are starting to gather outside the school, quite a big crowd. Not so much press, but just people, because Dunblane would be a place like, I'm trying to think of some of the, the areas I would drive through and driving down to Dingle. I'd be like, any of these places, like Dingle Town, someplace in the countryside, a beautiful, quite a well-to-do place. And so people who had jobs, parents and whatever, or fathers would be working nearby or two or three miles away, Everybody was getting the news, and suddenly there was a crowd outside the school, some people in working clothes and whatever, and everybody rushing just to see what, what had happened. And nobody knew. It was such chaos at that time. And uh, because I was with Alan, a parent, I was taken right through the red tape, and I, and I was right through the back of the, where the school was, uh, along with him. And at that point, I remember coming coming in, and there was kids coming out of the class. So I think at that point, the police had established, right, there's parents here, we'll get these kids out of here. And that might have been the kids from the other classes. And if he saw his kids, so he was there. So I kind of ventured forward a bit. I knew I shouldn't be there as a journalist. But I ventured forward a little bit So as they were all leaving. And I could see in the area, as soon as you would go into the school, like in a corridor, there was a cloakroom just off it. And I saw like a site that I'd stayed with in the yet that was just, it was a cloakroom with little jackets and coats hanging up because it was the dead of winter. And they were obviously the, the coats for the jacket, and the jackets for the kids who never came home that day. And it was such a poignant thought because you forget how small these cloakrooms are. You forget you were only small at five. And I remember seeing these little jackets and it, it stuck in my mind. And, you know, it, it haunts me to this day, that image. As Anna has pointed out, uh, this could be any of the towns that we pass through uh, on our way from Dublin to Cork or Dublin to Kerry. Um, Anna, this fella Hamilton, he, he of course he then killed himself, but mm-hmm. but he had a problem with children. I mean, he was a former scoutmaster, a former teacher. He he was quite disgraced because he had lost his job wherever he was working with children. Really, hadn't he? Yeah, there was that. There was there was something about and 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 very very quickly in the in the town, it became known who this killer was. And people we didn't know who he was, but people knew who people knew him in the village because I say village because it's a slightly bigger than a village, but people knew people knew that there was there was that, that he was the man behind it, and they knew him because they had taken their kids to the scout, had taken them hunting rabbits up the countryside. He had guns. He was the kind of person who was a bit of a character, but he had been disgraced because it, people had reported him at the scouts because he was getting kids to strip off and there's pictures of him. He wanted, there was something creepy about him. He wanted to be around kids and he liked young boys and he and, and was always a bit risque with them. He was taking them further than they would, they would be going in terms of making life a little bit dangerous. So he had been disgraced a little bit. But what used to, I think when it came to pass that we knew it was him, was say had he had so much ammunition, so many guns. He had a whole bag slung in each shoulder of ammunitions and guns to go in and, and, and cause that now, death. Uh, the issue of guns, I mean, Britain's a bit like Ireland. It's actually very hard to get your hands on guns, particularly uh, like repeat, shotguns perhaps for killing rabbits, but to get repeating rifles or, or revolvers or whatever. After, it's 20 years ago now, but after Dunblane, and I can remember it vividly, um, not in the same way you do, but I can remember the newspaper headlines, there was a, an, there was a huge outcry about gun control, wasn't there? Did anything yeah, happen? Yeah. 
Well, they had to change the law and gun, and guns so that it, that it wasn't easy. It was it wasn't. It was difficult to get a hold of gun anyway. You had to have a, you had to have a license. You had to get a license. You had to renew that permit. And if, I think if you had a shotgun or any kind of bigger gun, you had to be able to prove that you used it for shooting for whatever. It wasn't as easy as it was in, a, as in other countries to be able to hold a gun. But um, after that, there was a huge uh, outcry to, to ban guns completely, so that really nobody can have a gun here. You can only have a gun, I think, if, if you're a farmer now. And it wasn't. There was such an outrage after Dunblane. It didn't take a lot of convincing. There was anybody who was who would be saying the way they are in America. Well, I want to keep my gun. I like to have a gun in the house. And, and they had a permit. It just that was there was no appetite for that at all. People were so uh, so shattered and so shocked and so completely numbed by by that the, the tragedy. One thing we didn't uh, actually cover, which was how this whole story started for you, because you were taking Alan, your features editor, to the school because he had children in the school. His children were okay, were they? His children were fine. I think they were in the same class or the class. One of them was in the same class I know as Andy Murray, who was the ten, who was the tennis star, and he, they, they were in that class. And I, you can see I've seen interviews with Andy Murray since it, and breaking down talking about Dunblane because. I mean, not only did it happen and, and affect those families horribly of the kids uh, and the victims, but it was the other kids who nothing happened to as, in any kind of big tragedy to get a survivor's thing. And, and he he still talks. And he my, my um, feature editor's son was in that class as well. But I remember Andy, Andy um, Murray talking about it and how, as he grew up, it was always part of their lives because it's, it was part of everybody's life. It's like... Um, when you look back many years ago, which you'll remember, the Aberfan disaster, there are some things that, that just take one minute. The name conjures up an, an image, and it's Dunblane conjures up that. Lockerbie conjures up an image in Dunblane, despite the fact it's, it's got back to being a, it's built itself back to being a normal town again. It will never, for me, I've never been back there apart from a year after it. Yes, of course, interesting you mentioning Aberfan in Wales where uh, a slide of uh, from the coalface came down and buried the village and particularly the local school. And you're right, those names, uh, you know, are in our heads for one and one only reason, the tragedy. Thank you so much for joining me. Anna Smith, 20 years ago, chief reporter for the Daily Record at the Dunblane multiple killing and shooting uh, Incident. Thank you, George, and lovely to talk to you. Thank you. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie It's the Friday Right Hook here on News Talk with me, uh, George Hook, joined in the studio by Newstalk.com's uh, James Dempsey, who get here every Friday at this time on a sort of education module in which uh, it not necessarily educates the audience, but educates me. Um, what have you got for me? A scandal that is rocking the world of crosswords. A scandal? A scandal. Uh, you know I can't do crosswords. You, I didn't know that. So what yeah. is your issue with a crossword? Well, the, the lovely Ingrid is a crossword fanatic. <laughs> and in fact, if she doesn't do the Daily Telegraph crossword, her day is ruined. She's, a, she's what's known as a cruciverbalist. Wow, is she really? <laughs> she is, yes. A cruciverbalist. I must tell her that tonight uh, over dinner. Um, the, the, the other interesting thing about me is if you gave me the answer, I still can't work back to the clue. 
I have to admit, I'm not great at complex ones, but I like the old simplex one every now and again. But we're going to talk... Uh, well, the simplex is for primary school students. <laughs> yeah, that's why I like it. You get a nice right. sense of okay. achievement. Telegraph is tough. So the first crossword that is recognised was published on the 21st of December, 1913, in a newspaper called The New, the New York World. It was okay. written by a Liverpudlian by the name of Arthur Wynne. And it was actually called a word cross at the time. And it was it looked a little bit different from what we would recognise as a crossword today. But actually, US crosswords are quite different from the British crossword. I'm glad you made that point. To this very day, US crosswords are completely different. And the only time I've ever tried them is on a long airplane flight on the on the airline's uh, magazine. Yeah. And I can't make heads or tails <laughs> of them. How are they different? So they're different in the terms of layout. So... When you look at a British or Irish crossword and South African as well as actually they're known as British and South African crosswords, you have in your mind the concept of the words going up and across and interconnecting. In the American style, there's far more words in it and they are sort of stacked in rows, one on top of each other. And they have a a few clues that are called themes and they're sort of longer ones and they are repeated throughout the crossword. And that's sort of what is unique to an American crossword. The funny thing about crosswords is when they first started, they were not really all that successful. And really the game changer happened when, you know, the publishing house, uh, Simon and Schuster. Yeah. So they were about three months into publishing when the aunt of Simon, of Simon and Schuster, said to Simon, look, you know, I actually really like these crosswords. Maybe you could uh, publish a book of them. And he he very reluctantly did so with a little run of 3,000 books and they were sold with a pencil. And they became this huge publishing phenomenon. They sold 100,000 copies within the year, which was more than Mark Twain and George Bernard Shaw that year. So they had suddenly taken off. And crosswords became this huge thing to the point that trains were leaving crossword dictionaries inside the cars for people to do them on the way home. And in the Los Angeles library, I really liked this, people were limited. They were budgeted the time that they could have with a crossword dictionary at five minutes ago. (laughs) So they became this huge thing. Now, if you fast forward a century and look at today, there are two rock stars in the world of American crosswords. And the first one is the man who writes the New York Times crosswords. His name is Will Shorts. He is the only man in the world who has a bachelor's degree in, uh, what is it called? It's sort of enigmatology, which is the study of puzzles. So he is sort of very well known. All He's right. on the radio. He gets $300 for every crossword he gets printed on a weekday and $1,000 for the Sunday one. And then on the other hand, there is this very interesting rags to riches story of the other guy. His name is Timothy Parker. So he was pretty much a nobody. Uh, he was working in a tire yard in Baltimore up until the mid-90s when he was in his early 40s. And he threw it all in, his job, which was nothing particularly special, a very honest, noble job, but he was earning, I think, $500 a week. He tossed it all away to become this puzzle writer. And he started writing them off his own back, sold them to a couple of newspapers and got picked up by a big conglomerate. And he now has the um, the Guinness World Record for the most... Uh, sort of reprinted uh, really? puzzle guy in the world. He 800 online and newspapers uh, publish his crosswords every day and he gets about 5 million people doing them every month. So according to People magazine, which is perhaps not the <laughs> greatest journalistic thing. But he's thing, making a truckload of he's money. He's making a truckload of money and they, okay, described that's his, all right. they described his new living conditions as a six-bedroom colonial house in upstate Maryland. So he's doing very well for Are himself. we going to get to the scandal? We are right now getting to the scandal. Okay. <laughs> Earlier this week, 
a website called 538 published this article about how suddenly people had noticed a few discrepancies. And this could only happen today because someone had written a computer program that was able to analyse very quickly the different styles of, of uh, crosswords going on. And they noticed that very a significant number of crosswords written by Timothy Parker, the sort of rags to riches puzzle maker, were not completely direct lifts, but in many cases, many cases, very close to direct lifts of the New York Times crossword. Plagiarism. Plagiarism. Now, George, if you look, I brought you in an example. You can see here, I brought you in a picture of uh, of the USA Today crossword and then another one from the USA Today because not only was he ripping off allegedly, the New York Times, he was also ripping off himself and republishing crosswords that he had written one year under a new byline a couple of years later. And you can see there that crossword. So does that one mean- is November 2011 and the other is November 2004. Correct. And do they look very similar to you? They're the same. They are pretty much the same. There's only four words in the whole thing that are completely different. So they are... So he's in the manure now. He is. Yeah, he's going down to use a a crossword (laughs) clue. Yeah, so he is in trouble and there is some big trouble going on because there are, first of all, questions about the legality of this because, you know, a a crossword... But he is ripping himself off. He's ripping off USA Today. He's ripping off USA Today. He's ripping off the New York Times as well. Yeah, right. So what has happened is they have now launched this huge investigation into him and he has stepped aside temporarily in order to... We won't see him back. You don't think so? No, I think he's back uh, changing tyres on motor cars. (laughs) Now, can I tell him my crossword story? Please do. Have you ever heard of Bletchley Park? I have, yes. The great code breakers of World War II, which actually were more important than any other aspect in World War II to the Allied victory. Correct. Mostly... What do you call them? Crypto thingy me bumps? What's in uh, She is a. Now I yeah, whatever she is. <laughs> she is a cruciate ligament or whatever she is. Um, well, they, they, they used a lot of crossword guys to break the codes because they had that kind of mind. And then the most extraordinary thing what do you know about D Day? I, I, what was well, the code name for D-Day? Code name was Overlord, okay. right? The special harbours that they moved across channel for, for loading when they landed were called Mulberries. And there was a whole pile of other words, all these code words. They all appeared in the Daily Telegraph crossword in the weeks building up to D-Day. And the, the MI5 went bananas, obviously, but it was coincidence. An extraordinary coincidence. Well, actually, these coincidences happen all the time because when I was looking into this sort of plagiarism going yeah. on, there was this very interesting article. I mean, very interesting if you're into this sort of If nonsense. you're a, a, a cruciate ligament. Exactly, right. <laughs> About how this, these two other, the, the two lesser known, we'll say, superstars yeah. of, the, of the crossword world had actually written these themes, as I said, yeah. which are the long words in the American crosswords. Four out of five of them were exactly the same. And they they just wrote an email to each other going, is this, I mean, you know, this yeah. is pure happenstance. And it was pure happenstance. So look, if a crossword is being published every single day, occasionally you are going to get... Yeah, yeah. But the D-Day thing is the most striking well, that thing. is very striking. I mean, they were terrified because they'd spent so much time trying to keep the Germans I know from the, the British Intelligence Service published a puzzle again this year and one Irish man actually solved it. Really? They did, yes. 
All right? There you have it. God knows what this man will come up with. There is no end to the depths of his knowledge. Newstalk.com's James Dempsey, and you'll find all his best stuff on the webpage. Well, thank you for listening to that digest of news from the Daily Right Hook. But, of course, you can hear the full version in all its uh, excitement between 4.30 and 7 every day, Monday to Friday, here on News Talk. Do take care.